Hello and welcome back to the Historic Present podcast to what is officially the 11th episode in the series. I'm your host, Jonah Howe, and I'm joined by co-host, Charlie Gordon. Hello. Hello. So like I said, this is the 11th episode, not the 12th, as the last one so unhelpfully suggests. Today we talk to an author about her book on a truly fascinating subject, which isn't shared with the world enough, and was therefore a really great conversation for myself and Charlie to learn so much more about a topic we hardly knew about beforehand. Now this episode was actually recorded way back when in March, in the early weeks of spring. What's taken us so much time to release it? Well, since then, Charlie and I, much like many other British students our age, have gone through long periods of revision, followed by actually sitting our final GCSE exams. So we had to put the recording and editing on hold. However, exams are done, they're over and out of the way, and we're so happy to get the historic president back on the road. We have such exciting and different content coming up for you in the coming weeks. And so make sure you don't miss out by following the podcast on the platform you're currently using and double check that you're following our social media. So, Jonah of March 2021, let's get on with the episode. Moving on to today's history section of the podcast, we welcome historian and author Catherine Katz, author of The Daughters of Yalta. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for having me today. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's a chilly, uh, rainy day in Chicago today. <laughs> Spring's not quite here, but hopefully soon. I think we got spring a little earlier here in London. It was quite nice weather today, in fact. Yeah, it was. Um, it was Catherine, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes. So uh, I have loved history since I, before I can even remember. I grew up loving movies like The Sound of Music and White Christmas and The Great Escape. My grandfather was in the Navy during World War II, and I used to chase him around at holidays, asking him to tell me his stories about serving in the Navy and growing up in that time. And I also grew up in a family that loved to read, and I always loved especially the stories about characters who wanted to grow up to be writers someday, um, like Little House on the Prairie, which is very popular here in the U.S., um, other stories like uh, A Little Princess and uh, Anne of Green Gables, you know, a lot of kind of, again, the same theme. History, writing, storytelling is always what I loved. So I studied history at Harvard as an undergraduate, and then I did my MPhil at Cambridge uh, at Christ College with David Reynolds, looking at the origins of modern counterintelligence practices during the First World War. And then uh, after that, went and worked in finance for a few years until uh, history called me back, and I had the great opportunity to write my first book. Right, so this book, The Daughters of Yalta, uh, covers um, some of the events that occurred at the Yalta Conference, which took place near to the end of the Second World War. So can you tell us um, a bit more about this meeting and what it meant for some of the world leaders in attendance? Yes, the Yalta Conference took place in February 1945, between February 4th and February 11th. And it's coming at a time where it looks like finally the war in Europe is going to be drawing to a close sometime in the late spring or early summer of 1945. The Battle of the Bulge is raging uh, while uh, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin realize that they need to meet in person soon to decide on the uh, outcome of certain issues that will come along with the end of the war in Europe, namely what to do about Germany after the war. Should Germany be allowed to remain one nation or should it be broken up into smaller states in hopes that they can't rise up as a belligerent for a third time in a century? Uh, also very, very important, especially to Winston Churchill, is the future of Poland and Polish sovereignty. 
Britain, of course, went to war in defense of Polish sovereignty at the outset. The Polish government has been in exile ever since. And Churchill doesn't want to come back to London and you know, look them in the eye and tell them that they weren't able to secure that which they went to defend at the very beginning. Stalin has some other ideas when it comes to Eastern Europe, and especially Poland. He is determined that after all the sacrifices the Soviets have made on the Eastern Front, that they have friendly neighbors on their borders. Soviet Union and the Russian Empire before has been invaded multiple times through the flatlands of Poland. And so he wants to make sure at the end that the government in Warsaw is going to be friendly to the interests of the Kremlin. Uh, Roosevelt, meanwhile, is a little bit more oriented towards the Pacific. Uh, the war there is not as advanced yet. Uh, the, they don't know if the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb, will be an option. Uh, Iwo Jima has not yet happened. And so uh, Roosevelt wants to save American lives. And in doing so, he thinks that he can uh, draw the Soviets into the war, break their pact of neutrality with the Japanese, and encourage them to join the fight, uh, really, to, to save as many Americans as possible. And he also has his personal goal, where he wants to establish a peace organization of the United Nations, not only to succeed where Woodrow Wilson failed, and of course, to secure uh, peace, especially in Europe, for at least 50 years, but really as a mechanism to draw the Soviet Union into the international community after the common enemy has been defeated. And so those are four of the main, uh, not only, there are many issues brought up at Yalta, but four of the very important ones that they realize that they need to meet in person to discuss. I think I think you're right. It's fair to say you also went pretty well uh, for the big three and the Allies. There were lots of agreements about Japan, about elections, more criminals, Germany, United Nations, and Eastern Europe. There was only really you know, very few disagreements at Yalta. Slightly different to Potsdam, but obviously you've written a book, uh, "Daughters, the Daughters of Yalta." If I say, um, seems fascinating. Can you tell us a bit about what, what it is and what, what was your inspiration behind it as well? Yes, yeah, so the Daughters of Yalta tells the story not only of the Yalta Conference itself, but more specifically about the relationships between Churchill, Roosevelt, and Ambassador April Harriman, the ambassador of the Soviet Union, uh, and their daughters, each of whom came to Yalta to serve as their aides at the conference, which I thought was fascinating. I had studied the Yalta Conference many times in school, and I had never realized that these three daughters who were all in their 20s and 30s had been there serving as their father's aides. Yeah, and I thought that that was remarkable. And the way I found the story, uh, having been interested in history and World War II and Churchill for a long time, uh, it was actually very coincidental. I was working in finance in New York and in the lobby of my office, there happened to be a bookstore called Chartwell Booksellers named after Churchill's country home. And uh, it was a, a Churchill-themed bookstore, and through the uh, owner of the bookstore, I connected with the International Churchill Society and the Churchill family and learned that they were about to open the papers of Churchill's middle daughter, Sarah, to researchers for the first time. And they asked if I'd be interested in writing an article about them. And so at first I thought, you know, maybe I could write a book about Sarah Churchill. She had a fascinating life. She was an actress, had uh, been in a movie with Fred Astaire, you know, very exciting but she had had an even more fascinating wartime experience serving as her father's aides at the uh, Tehran and the Alta conferences. And it was her presence at uh, Tehran first that inspired Roosevelt and Harriman to bring their daughters to the Yalta conference in 1945. It's, it's, again, again, you know, it sounds, it sounds really fascinating. The whole, it's incredible to think the fact that, you know, all these massive, you know, leaders of these countries had their daughters um, helping helping them out. It, it, it's, it's really fascinating. What were they actually like um, doing there? Yeah, so each of the daughters' roles was a little bit different, and it is a, a totally different perspective on Churchill and Roosevelt as well. You, you think of them as these larger-than-life figures. To the extent that they almost become you know, more than human, 
but you forget that they're also somebody's father. And what would it be like to be their daughter, which I thought was just such an interesting concept. Um, and so, but not only are they there, you know, of course, loving, supportive daughters, but their roles are very uh, practical as well. Sarah Churchill has kind of a multifaceted role for Winston. She uh, really understands the way his mind works. Um, she is someone who can kind of serve as almost like a family privy council member of sorts, uh, helping him sort through his frustrations that he has with Roosevelt at this time about Roosevelt's seeming uh, lack of interest in the future of Poland and the risks that the Soviet Union presents. Sarah has also been serving uh, in the women's branch of the Royal Air Force throughout the war. So she understands the military operations side of things, specifically through her work on Operation Torch and the Allied operations in the Mediterranean. Uh, and she's also a very gifted writer, much like her father. And she knows that after the war, he'll want to write his war memoirs like he had after the First World War. And so she is uh, writing to her mother about what's taking place at the conference with an eye towards her letters being used by her father someday to write his history of this time, which is really fascinating. Uh, Kathleen Harriman has a, a more functional role, which is similar to what we'd almost think of like a protocol officer at the Foreign Office or the State Department today. She speaks Russian. Uh, she's 27 years old, has been with her father since uh, 1941 when he was serving as a Len Lison boy in London. It, in 1943, he becomes the ambassador to the Soviet Union. Kathleen decides to learn to speak Russian for both of them and really becomes like an extension of her father and his assistant ambassador in some ways, uh, carrying out a number of his duties, including going to Yalta in advance to work with the Soviet advance team, the American advance team, uh, preparing for the conference, also creating briefing materials for the uh, Americans who are coming who have no experience in the Soviet Union, helping to bridge some of the cultural divides to further diplomacy. And it's also kind of this trusted audience for her father, much like Sarah, where they're having these late night conversations at one, two o'clock in the morning about his frustration uh, with the uh, view that Roosevelt has towards the Soviet Union and their willingness to keep their promises. Anna Roosevelt's role is really the most personal. Um, there's a great secret at this time, which Anna is one of a very, very tiny uh, number of people who knows about it. Um, and that is the fact that Roosevelt is dying of congestive heart failure and that he's very, very sick. It is amazing that he even made the journey to the Yalta given how sick he was and he dies just eight weeks after the Yalta conference ends. Roosevelt himself doesn't know how sick he is. He has never wanted to know about his state of health. And you can understand he's a, a wartime president. Any sense of your own mortality could really get in the way of your ability to do your job and finish you know, fighting the war. And so Anna knows the secret. She's uh, kind of carrying the burden for him and also really serving as a, a protector and a shield, uh, trying to minimize the number of people who are meeting with him, holding him at an arm's length, really uh, doing everything that she can to help him uh, gather his strength to just physically make it through the conference and survive the trip. Uh, for you, was was there any sort of like specific influence that the daughters had on on the leaders? Would you say? Yeah, so they're they're subtle, and we all have someone in our lives who are you know, they're a fundamentally important person. They're the person that we turn to in moments of self doubt, uh, when there's concern, when we need advice, and it's often difficult to point to exactly what it is that they do that make them invaluable. And that kind of role rarely leaves a, a paper trail that you can follow. And yet we all know what that 
is when we see it. We know who that person is in our lives. I'm sure you can think of someone who who plays that role for you. And so these daughters very much serve that role for their fathers there, where they are you know, doing functional tasks like Kathleen Harriman kind of working you know, between the Soviet and American advance teams. Uh, but then there's Sarah Churchill, who it's hard to point to what it is that she's doing that's so important, but she's really helping her father channel his frustrations as the uh, alliance and friendship that he has with Roosevelt is starting to wear at this point and helping him bring his frustrations into the most uh, reasonable and productive line of argument before he goes into the conference room the next day. What's interesting though, is Anna Roosevelt has this very active role in trying to protect her father and keeping people at bay. But in doing so, she's kind of acting as an instrument of her father's objectives, where he wants to hold the British somewhat at arm's length while he develops a more personal bond, he hopes, with Stalin and the Soviets for the post-war world, recognizing the strength that the Soviets have, which is greater than Britain, unfortunately, at this time. And so Anna is kind of the person that he puts out there to serve as a buffer between himself and Churchill. This, unfortunately, I think led to detrimental effects when it came to the negotiations in the conference room themselves. So Roosevelt and Churchill didn't have a united front when they went in to meet with Stalin. And unfortunately, Anna's lack of experience kind of, she allowed herself to play that role, even though it didn't further allied objectives, unfortunately, as we can see in hindsight. But I think any criticism of that should really lie with Roosevelt for allowing and kind of encouraging his daughter to play this role, uh, one that she probably didn't even realize she was playing in a way. So it's you think of Roosevelt as being very progressive, very uh, pro uh, feminism, especially with his relationship with Eleanor and the great work they did together. But when it came to his daughter, he was not as open minded and enlightened as you might assume. Uh, And Churchill, meanwhile, actually emerges as one who really values and appreciates uh, the women in his life, especially his wife and daughters, who were some of his closest and greatest advisors. Was this a first case scenario of this sort of thing? I can't imagine um, many times before world leaders would bring their um, children, very least their, you know, sons or daughters to these global events slash agreements. Like, was this the first time this sort of things were seen? It was a a very unusual situation. Uh, You had never had three daughters playing this role before. There has always been some element of the first family playing a role in their, uh, their, up to this point, father's uh, administrations in the United States. You've had first sons uh, dating back to John Quincy Adams serving as a a principal private secretary of sorts uh, to their father, but that's more of a logistical role than really a policy role. Uh, So there has been some acceptance of that over time. You've had uh, first daughters filling in as first lady if there is no first lady or if uh, they're away or too ill uh, or something of that nature. In Britain, you see the the monarch sending uh, a child to pursue diplomacy around the world. Um, Think of Queen Victoria sending her son when she was older. uh, And he was really kind of the public face of the monarchy uh, going and conducting business on her behalf in different parts of the British Empire. And so you you have had also in World War II, uh, Roosevelt brought his sons often to his overseas meetings, but really as a physical support, he was paralyzed. And so they could help him stand and move. Uh, But it was in much more of that kind of capacity. Um, 
And so it was a, a different sort of role that is much more yeah. personal, much more introspective, um, and a little bit more hands-on, like, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, somewhat like protocol officers in a way, uh, as we think of it today. Uh, so very different from examples of first children and especially first daughters' involvement in the past. What were the relationships, if there were any, between um, the three daughters themselves? Do we know if they got along or if they had any... <laughs> That's a great question. And I think it's really tempting to think of them as a kind of a unit, you know, like three girls against the world. Uh, and it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Their re relationships really ebb and flow, reflecting the tensions and the ebbing and flowing the relationships among their fathers. Uh, their loyalty, first and foremost, was to their dad and to their country. Sarah Churchill and Kathleen Harriman were friends before they came to Yalta. Uh, the, the Harrimans and the Churchills were really close friends throughout the early days of the war. In fact, they were had been celebrating Kathleen's 24th birthday on December 7th, 1941, when they all learned the news about Pearl Harbor. So the, these two families have had a, a long and uh, significant experience together. Anna Roosevelt had never met the other two daughters before she came, and she arrived the least experienced in that world compared to the other two daughters. She's also the oldest one and the only mother, which is a slightly different perspective. And Kathleen Harriman is someone who brims with confidence She's had a lot of experience working with leaders across all three of the delegations, British, American, Soviet, and Anna really hasn't. So she arrives there and sees Kathleen's very comfortable. People are very uh, naturally deferential to her just because they're used to working with her. Meanwhile, Anna feels like she should kind of be the ranking daughter in a way. And so she does not especially care for Kathleen when she arrives. Um, which is quite funny because Kathleen is completely oblivious to the fact that Anna doesn't really like her. <laughs> um, and so it's a, it's just kind of a, a funny little moment of interpersonal yeah. relationships there. <laughs> yeah, um, I want to ask you, um, so do you think people are surprised about the, their presence and role in, at Yulta at the time and today, if you want to answer both separately? Yes, uh, it was not known when Yalta was taking place that the conference was happening. It was a, a very well-guarded secret. They knew that there was, the, the wider public knew that there would probably be another meeting among the big three at some point. They didn't know when, they didn't know where, but it was actually the fact that both FDR and Anna as well disappeared from Washington at the end of January that people began to get a sense that something was afoot. And so they didn't know exactly what was going on. Uh, Harry Hopkins had also disappeared at the time and he'd gone off first to London. And so there was a sense you know, that Anna was with her father acting in some role, but they weren't really sure what. Um, similarly, in Britain, it was a very you know, closely guarded secret. So it wasn't until after the Yalta conference occurred and there were photographs and uh, newsreels uh, put out from the general public that they could see that the daughters had been there at this conference. Today, I think people still don't realize that the daughters had been there. Maybe it's because in writing about the Yalta Conference, there's so much to discuss on the geopolitical front. If the daughters are mentioned at all, it's kind of a sentence here or there as a, a lighthearted aside to add some human interest to the story. Uh, like a, there's one moment at the conference where Stalin's guards lose sight of him when he goes, he ducks into the bathroom and they think that perhaps the Americans have tried to kidnap him. And so one of the daughters writes about this in a letter home. And uh, so that has sometimes been cited, but really not a lot about their prominent role there in the relationship with their fathers. But part of the reason was because Sarah Churchill's papers had only just been opened and I was the first one to go through them comprehensively. So we weren't able to see this full picture of what she was doing. 
Similarly, Kathleen's papers are still uh, with her family, a few of them in her father's archives at the Library of Congress in Washington, DC, uh, but mostly still just you know, within the family. And uh, because they're not accessible to most people, uh, we don't know about Kathleen's story as much either. And now we do, which is really exciting to not only be one of the first people to access new sources, but also to do so at a time when there are still people alive who remember them from that time. Uh, one of Churchill's secretaries who's still alive, Lady Jane Williams, kindly allowed me to interview her. Uh, Anna Roosevelt's children who are in their 80s and 90s. Her daughter was a teenager at the time of Yalta, so she clearly remembers everything. So it's a really uh, special moment to have the sources and the memories together. Yeah. Well, that's what I find so interesting about history because we're doing a recording with um, Andrew Chatterton about um, auxiliary units and how it wasn't until 30, 40 years after the Second World War, people started finding out about these stuff, started starting to uncover records. And, you know, you can state a similar case for the Daughters of Yalta. And I love how even today you can still uncover things and still learn so much um, about the past. Over here in, um, in the UK on our GCSE course, we don't we don't do anything about um, the daughters of Yalta. I didn't know they were present before today. Um, but yeah. Well, it leads on to my question, actually. How important do you think um, it is that people are educated about this specific topic? <laughs> I think that, well, first, it's a topic that involves a really heavy geopolitical history, which is something that I believe people find intimidating sometimes or just not relatable to their own lives. And because they get a, this sense of it, they're almost uh, reluctant to engage with it. They think they might not be able to understand it. You think, oh, Yalta, that's way over my head. I don't know what it's like to negotiate across the table from Stalin. Of course, that's so far removed from our own experience. But seeing this history through the perspective of the daughters, it gives you the sense that these people that become larger than life as time goes on actually were very human. And that we don't know in our own lives what it's like to negotiate with Stalin across the conference table, but we all know what it's like to be someone's child. And that's a relationship which can be a window into understanding history to also seeing that history, even at the highest summits of geopolitics, is really about relationships. And relationships are the underpinning of all aspects of history. Um, the personal and political are intimately intertwined and absolutely inseparable. So I hope that this story and the perspective of the daughters can help people see that they can understand and be excited about these lofty moments in history and that there is something in it that we can all relate to in our own lives. And I hope bring more people into the conversation about history. Do, do you think the daughters themselves, they had um being at this conference do you think they um well actually not do you think did they and what did they end up doing after it what did they end up doing yeah so the yalta conference and this chance to travel with their fathers and be their aides and really be this invaluable person in their lives was something you know, it was an opportunity that the war offered like it did for so many women to have their abilities uh recognized to be able to perform work that they were you know, highly capable of doing but wouldn't have had the opportunity to do otherwise but what's kind of ironic about Yalta is that they can all see that they're, they all understand first that they're living through a significant moment of history and they want to record this. And each of them kind of uh, acknowledges this in their, their letters and diaries. But they also know that 
with the end of the war, the bittersweet truth is that, yes, the war will be over, and that is a great thing to look forward to. But it also means that this chance that they've had to be at their father's side will probably come to an end as well. It's a window that's closing soon, and they'll be on the outside looking in again. And yet they're at peace with it. It is almost enough that they get to have this chance uh, to be valued and appreciated you know, within their father's worlds. So it is kind of a bittersweet end to the war for each of them. Sarah writes very eloquently about this, you know, so moving to hear her words about you know, these, these great memories she'll have that will never fade. But she's not bitter that you know, it might change. And of course, you know, we look back on it now with our perspective of it's you know, really such a shame that these women didn't have the opportunity to participate in politics in their own right, uh, which they might have if they'd been born even 10 years later, which would have made them contemporaries of Thatcher. Um, but it is... Uh, they saw it as a really valuable chapter in each of their lives, and then they went on to other things. Uh, Sarah returned to her career as an actress. Uh, she starred in a movie with Fred Astaire after the war, so that was a huge triumph for her career. Kathleen Harriman had been working as a war reporter at the beginning of the war. She returns to working as a journalist for Newsweek magazine uh, before she marries and has children and absolutely sees her role as a mother as the, you know, the highlight of her life. You know, just as important, if not more, than what she'd done during the war. And Anna Roosevelt, um, her father dies shortly after the war, which was very jarring. Her whole world and these idea of being the president's daughter, which has defined almost the entirety of her adulthood, is suddenly stripped away overnight. And she has to you know, find a different place for herself in the world. And though the daughters don't walk away from Yalta as the best of friends, they all certainly have moments in their lives that resonate where their shared experience uh, is a, a comfort and support uh, to each other, which is really fascinating, you know, without giving too much of the end of the story of each of them away. I hope that this shows people that, yeah, yes, that daughters and fathers can have really strong relationships, and they absolutely do and have over time. But I also think that it's, on the one hand, of course, women did not have enough representation in elected office and traditional forms of government and leadership over time. But that's not to say that they were without power either, as even in the political world. It was more nuanced forms of power and influence, but it was there nonetheless. But it's kind of on us as historians to seek it out and to look for them where they are having power and influence, even if they're not at the negotiating table, even if they're not the primary office holder. Uh, you can go back to uh, uh, Margaret Beaufort, uh, the mother of Henry VII, who founded uh, my college at Cambridge. And it was so much of her influence that brought an end to the War of the Roses and you know, really set the stage for the history of early modern Britain. She was hugely powerful, but she was not you know, the queen in her own right. And so there's stories like that over time where it is more nuanced um, versions of holding power and influence, but it is there nonetheless. So I hope that this story can highlight for people some of those non-traditional ways of influencing uh, power and history, because so much of what happens at the conference table or you know, in any of these pivotal moments kind of in traditional forms of governance is really the result of the conversations and thoughts and ideas of many, many people kind of channeled through one individual as the spokesperson for that. And many, in many cases, women are, you know, part of that formation of ideas that eventually gets communicated. This is a massive show of female empowerment in such a male dominated scene, even today, but even more so um, back in the late forties, early fifties, that, it's almost quite shameful in a way that we're not taught about this at school. Um, but these three daughters, I think, can be seen as such a massive role model to be taking on so much at quite a young age, to be honest. Um, 
is really inspiring. Um, and it's not just the yeah. geopolitics, it's also the Soviets have spies running amok and they're either the pressures of the environment, to this, you know, the conference is being held in this beautiful palace that once belonged to the Tsar and was this, you know, country retreat of sorts, you know, on the, on the shore of the Black Sea where his family you know, swam in the ocean and played tennis. Um, but it's just shrouded in so much uh, devastation of the history of the Crimea, which is also so interesting. And so just the, the sense of place and environment also affecting uh, their their jobs there and the kind of deceit and espionage taking place in the background, double agents, uh, everybody being bugged. I just think it's so fascinating uh, and really exciting yeah, as well. Right, Catherine, I, I'm going to buy Daughters of Yalta right now because yeah. after this chat, I'm, I'm so yeah. intrigued. Um, I read. Okay, I think um, it's good to wrap up here. Yeah, I think it's good as well. Yeah. So Great. we've gone into the into the Yalta conference into more depth. Um, looked at an incredibly fascinating side of the story, one that we do not get taught at all um, here during the GCSE course over in the UK. Catherine, Catherine, thank you so much. Um, the Daughters of Yalta sounds like a fascinating book. Um, I'm, I'm going to read it like, as soon as I can. <laughs> thank uh, you. Thanks so much for joining us today. And maybe we can speak to you again sometime soon. That would be great. I, I love what you guys are doing. I think this is a terrific podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come and speak to your listeners, uh, whether they're in the G GCSE course or you know beyond, or just interested in history. Uh, and uh, thanks so much for giving me a chance to, to share more about the, the story about these three remarkable daughters. So I hope everyone comes to know and love as much as I do. Thank you. Thank you.